Let's start with a quick survey. How many, show of hands, how many of you have ever asked God, ever prayed for a miracle? At some point, at some point in your life, you asked God, you prayed for a miracle. Yeah, most of us, I think, would say that we have prayed and asked God for a miracle. Let me ask you this, a little different, a little different question. Uh, you don't even have to raise your hands. Just think about this one. H- have you ever, in, at some point in your life, been insulted by someone and their use of the word miracle. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Well, 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 look who showed up on time. It's a miracle. I mean, you don't have to admit that someone said that about you. How about this one? Someone says, wow, this casserole that you made is actually really good. It's a miracle. First of all, those things, are, those comments are really rude. So if you're in the habit of saying that to people, stop. Stop saying that to people. And that's not even what a miracle is. Just so we're all on the same page, a miracle is when God intervenes into the natural order of his creation. A miracle is when God intervenes into the natural order of his creation. Someone rolling out of bed on time may be a pleasant surprise and is not a miracle. I want to show you a miracle. Would you join me in John chapter 2? We're going to continue our series throughout the gospel of John. We're in John chapter 2. We're going to read the story of a miracle that Jesus performs, his first miracle in Cana. If you don't have a Bible in front of you... Or with you, there's one there in front of you. Uh, You can also find the text this morning on our digital notes. If you have paper notes, just use the QR code with your phone there on the the paper notes. It'll take you right to the digital notes. You can follow along. John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 has the setting for this miracle. The next day, there was a wedding. A wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Now, who's there? Jesus, his... uh, his mom, Mary, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus is there. His disciples were also invited to the celebration. Now, Cana is this small village, small village about eight miles north of Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus, where his family, Mary, and uh, that's where they're from. And one of the disciples, Nathaniel, he's from Cana. So we wonder why are they at this wedding? Just the setting. Well, Nathaniel is from there, so he might know the family. He might be part of that family. Maybe they were close friends. Uh, the, Nazareth is close enough. These are villages, and they're close enough where uh, G- Jesus and, and Mary, that they would have perhaps most likely known this family, maybe even uh, been somewhat related in some way, uh, close friends, however it was. But they were invited to this wedding in, in Cana. Now, weddings in our culture are a big deal, right? They're big celebrations, but uh, you want to talk about a big deal. In, in this ancient culture, weddings lasted seven days. Can you imagine a wedding celebration lasting seven days? You might not admit it out loud, but I already know what some of you are thinking. I, some of you go to a wedding, and you're like, if this lasts longer than 30 minutes, I am out. I am not going to sit here for an hour-long ceremony. And, and a lot of people, you know, they, they go to the reception, 
And, you know, even if it's a fun reception, uh, after an evening, you're done, right? You've had enough. It's, it's time to go home. Can you imagine a week? My daughter, Hannah, is engaged, and uh, Angie and I are setting money aside. We are saving money for the reception. I can't imagine uh, if we had to have a reception that lasts a week uh, I don't think we could afford it. It'd be like, well, honey, I don't know. Uh, Chick-fil-A is going to have to cater your, your reception. I don't know what else we're going to do. A week-long reception. It's a big deal. Everyone's involved. Everyone in the community is, is a part of it. It's a big deal. Verse 3, there's a crisis. There's a problem. So it's, a, it's an amazing event. Everyone's gathered. High expectations. Verse 3 reveals the problem. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. Doesn't say what day, doesn't say where we're at in this week-long celebration, but at some point, the wine supply ran out, and Jesus' mother, Mary, told Jesus they have no more wine. Now, why does Mary know this is happening? There's probably a lot of questions that you might have. I'll try to answer as many of them as we go through it as I can. Why does she notice that this is happening. We're, we don't know. We're not given the information. Is she that close to the family? Was she helping out with some of the serving? There's different possibilities as to why uh, that it's the servants and it's Mary that knows this. And Mary then brings the information to Jesus. They're out of wine. And, and you could maybe understand why that would be embarrassing. Let's say you were having a wedding reception and you ran out of food or something uh, and, and there's still people that didn't get to eat. That'd be embarrassing, and probably people would talk about it uh, for the rest of your life. You know, remember we went to that reception and we didn't get anything to eat. But this is more than just embarrassing for this family. Uh, this is this is crisis level for the groom's family. Not only would this have brought shame on their family indefinitely, as long as there would be people that would remember what happened. This would this would have brought shame on their family uh, generations. But there were also legal problems that this could have brought. They could have been fined. I know it sounds weird, but they could have been fined. Uh, and the bride's family actually legally had standing, if, if this would have continued, they could have brought suit against the groom's family. Now, that would have made things awkward, but legals, legally they could, have, they could have brought suit against the groom's family. The point is this, this is a potential disaster. This is not just like a party faux pas. This is a potential disaster. And the next question, you're probably wondering, why is she telling, why is she telling Jesus? I mean, it wasn't his responsibility to bring the wine to the party. It's not like a family picnic today when everyone gets assigned something to bring. Betty, would you please bring the potato salad? You make the most amazing potato salad. Please bring that. Mildred, uh, we, we need you to make your cupcake. Everyone loves your cupcakes. Please, you're in charge of the cupcakes. Bring, bring those. Uh, Jesus, Mary, you, you, you're, you bring the wine. You take care of that. Okay, fine. Festus, I, I don't know. Uh, you're in charge of the cups. You know, can, you, can you bring the cups, Festus? Can you handle that? Bill, bring, bring some cups. He's, he's, he's not going to remember the cups when you take care of that. It's not what's going on here. She, she's, she's telling Jesus this information because she wants him to help. She wants him to help this family. She's not asking Jesus to go buy more wine. She's asking 
Jesus to perform a miracle, to save this family from this social disaster. Verse 4, look at his response. It's fascinating. It starts off with, with just responding back to Mary this way. Dear woman, we'll talk about it in a moment. Notice he doesn't say mom. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Now that's how the New Living translates it. New Living translates it, translates it. That's not our problem. I'll get into it in just a moment. You might have something different there. Uh, Jesus replied, this is important, my time, my hour has not yet come. There's a ton of stuff to unpack in, in those two sentences. First of all, let's just talk about the way he responds to Mary when calling her woman or good woman. This was a formal address. It was not, he was not being rude or short with, with his mom, but he does address her with a formal way of, of talking to, to a woman. It's, it would be like saying, ma'am, in our, in our current culture, ma'am. It's, 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 it's formal, uh, but it puts some distance uh, between Jesus relationally and, and Mary. He's not being rude, but he's making it very clear to her that their relationship is different now. It's different than it was when he was growing up. This relationship is changing, and he's making that point. Angie and I are in that season of life right now. We, I, I can relate to this moment. Our kids are, are young adults, two out of the three of them. Uh, Hannah's about to graduate from college. We, you know, she's engaged. Uh, Elijah's halfway through college. He, he's got a serious girlfriend. So we're, we're, in this, we're in this season of life when the relationship is, is changing. Now, we still pay for almost everything, right? So uh, they're still that. Uh, they're not out on their own. They're not paying their own bills, right? So it's not completely like these, uh, that our kids are off on their own, doing their own thing. Uh, we still have that dynamic, but it's changing. And, and to be honest, sometimes it's weird. You know, it's just weird. It's, it's normal. It's a normal part of life. We want them to get married. We want them to establish their own family. We want them to start paying their own bills. We want, we want all of these things. That's a normal part of everyday life. But we are redefining, that's the season of life that we find ourselves in, just redefining that relationship. And, and so I can relate to this, this moment. But it's more than just that. It's, it's, uh, we're going to find out here in the next sentence, yes, he is making sure she understands this dynamic in their relationship is, is no longer what it used to be. But it's, it's a little deeper than that. When he says, well, why do you involve me? The New Living puts it uh, a little differently. Now, th that's not our, our problem. Literally, here's what it says in, in, in the original language. What do we have in common? What do we have in common? And and that phrase was a common phrase uh, that uh, they would have understood to mean like this. Now, I'll put it maybe in, in, a, in a phrase that you've heard, perhaps, kind of get the point. Uh, why is their lack of preparation my emergency? You ever heard someone say that? Your, your lack of preparation is not my emergency. And it might sound rude, it might sound indifferent, but it's not. We have to keep reading. He, he's bringing up a valid question, 
Uh, why, why are you involving me in this? Why are we getting involved? The next part or the next sentence that Jesus says is my time, here's his reason, my time, my hour has not yet come. Well, that's a direct reference to his mission. Jesus is, was here on the earth for a reason, for a purpose, for a mission. His death and resurrection is the mission. It's why he was here. And so the point Jesus is making, you take those two sentences, you try to unpack you know, the meaning in the dialogue. Essentially he's saying, once I start doing miracles, the journey to the cross begins. Ma'am, I have to make sure that I am doing my Father's will, that I, am, that I am only doing things in the timing that my Father wants me to do them in. Right? That's, that's the dynamic of what he's saying to Mary. Verse 5. Verse 5, his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. So it's clear that Jesus, in his compassionate heart over the situation, you know, cares about this family, makes his point but he decides he's going to perform the miracle. But he's going to do it under the radar. He's going to do it under the radar. The only people who are going to know this even happens are Jesus, his disciples, Mary, and the servants. Just the people who know there's a problem. So Mary tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. And, and when I read that, it's like, okay, she gets it. She, she picks up what Jesus was saying when he addressed her as ma'am. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. What's he do? Verse six, standing nearby, if you just imagine this playing out in real time, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. And each one of those stone jars could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Big jars. And Jesus told the servants to fill the jars with water. We'll stop right there. These, these stone jars, I have a picture here, uh, what these jars would look like. They're big jars. If you've ever seen a, a water barrel, you know, a 30-gallon water barrel, that's big. It's huge. And, and I, I added this up, and yes, I used a calculator. I didn't do it in my head. Uh, you add that up, you had, maybe you had some 20-gallon ones, maybe you had 30-gallon ones. We don't know the combination there. But we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons that Jesus is about to transform from water into wine. But I want you to notice that, that John gives us a very important detail about these huge stone jars. What are they used for? He points out that these jars aren't just decoration sitting around. They didn't pull, you know, flower pots or little, you know, decorative trees out of them and empty them out. That's not what they're used for. They were used for a Jewish purification washing or ceremony. It brings up an interesting question, at least I think. Why didn't Jesus just use the empty wine jars? I mean, if you're out of wine, it came from somewhere, you had, it was in some type of container, and now it's all gone, now you've got a lot of empties laying around. Why didn't Jesus just fill those back up? That'd be a miracle. That's not what he does. 
Because not only is Jesus about to miraculously save this family from a crisis, he is about to use this opportunity to make a powerful spiritual point. These stone jars, as we said, they're used for spiritual purification. These weren't something that they would have had if you've ever been to a wedding, maybe a, a venue wedding you go and there's like you're in a barn. Usually there's like a uh, hand sanitizing, a hand washing station somewhere. That's not what this is. This is for purification. It's not to clean uh, grime. It's not to wash in that sense. not a physical cleaning these things are used for. This is for a purification, spiritual purification. And there is enough water in these jars collectively to fill what's called a mikvah. A mikvah, and I have a, a picture over on this other side of an ancient mikvah. A mikvah is a permanent tub. So we have a portable one here. We have, uh, we have a more permanent baptistry over in the other room that hopefully at some point we'll be able to get back functioning. But we have this portable one called baptistry tub. It's just a big water trough. And it, it holds, in case you were wondering, 150 gallon. Right? So we're, we're within... Uh, this is about the size of what those jars could fill. This mikvah in, in, in Jewish homes would have been used for immersion. So you would have other ways of purifying or, or cleansing in a spiritual sense. Uh, hands, there were different ways, feet, but you'd also have these mikvahs that were for immersion, purification, ceremonies. Let's say someone touched a dead body. That would be an appropriate time to use a mikvah. Someone, a, a woman has a child. That would be a time that they would use a mikvah for a, a, a purification ceremony afterwards. Uh, and, interestingly enough, another reason why they would use a mikvah is when a bride is getting married. So it's very possible that that's why these things were, were sitting around. When Jesus filled these stone jars with wine, this is important, they can no longer be used for the spiritual purification purpose. He's essentially ruining them for that purpose. And these are expensive. These are hand-carved stone jars. This is not like... Uh, a cheap plastic thing that you get from Home Depot, just go out and get a couple more. This is a big deal. So how now that these can no longer be used for that purpose, how are people going to be spiritually purified? Hmm. That's why Jesus came. He is going to take the place of those jars. Jesus will provide the spiritual cleansing. He will provide the spiritual purification that we need, you ready, when his hour comes. His blood sacrifice on the cross is going to replace the purification system. We read on. Verse 8. They fill it up. And then Jesus gives this instructions. I want you to dip some out, dip some out, take it to the, the master of ceremonies. You might have a different title in the version that you have. I'll explain his role here in just a second. But that's what they did. The servants followed his instructions. They, they took some of the wine. They took it to the master of ceremonies. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, 
not knowing where it had come from. Of course, the servants knew. He called the bridegroom over, called the groom over, and, and he made this observation. He said, he's, he's impressed. He said, oh, a host always serves the best wine first. And then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, you have kept the best until now. He's impressed. This master of the banquet or the master of ceremonies, his role in, in, in this setting would have been like the head waiter. Now, whether he was hired for that, a family member, a friend, we don't know, but uh, his role as the head waiter, as the master of ceremonies, uh, his role was, you ready? He was supposed to be in charge of the distribution of food and wine. In other words, most likely this is the guy at fault for this whole debacle. Like, this is probably his fault. And yet Jesus doesn't even throw him under the bus. His response is fascinating. He says, you saved the best for last. Not only does Jesus transform water into wine, it's this aged wine. He gives it age. I mean, it's incredible. On the molecular level, does so many incredible, miraculous things in this moment. Now, I admit to you, I am at a disadvantage in explaining this part to you. I have never tasted wine. And so I have no idea how to describe to you the difference between fine, fancy wine and a wine you get at a, in, in a box at Walmart. I don't know the difference. And before you rush the stage after we're done today, because you want to tell me the difference, relax, I don't really care to know the difference. It doesn't matter to me. Now, if, if we were talking something a little bit different, if we were saying we go to this week-long celebration and we started the week out, you know, with some cheeseburgers on the grill and pulled pork sandwiches and baked beans. It's good stuff, right? But as the week goes on, we get to uh, halfway through the week and all of a sudden now we're getting filet mignon and, and, and Alaskan snow crabs and, and uh, sea bass, you know, all these kind of, fa- if, if the fancy food was coming later in the week, okay, now you're talking my language. Now, now I'm understanding, I also guess I'll just pause here and make this point before we move on. If you have ever tried to use this story to justify getting drunk and acting like a fool at a wedding reception, please stop doing that. Don't use this story as a justification for that because that's not what it's about. That's not the point of the story. That's not even what would have happened. Step back into the context of, of this wedding celebration. Where are we? Who, who are we talking about? This is a week. This is not like an evening. This is a week-long celebration for a Jewish family who obviously care very much about purity before God. So getting drunk at this wedding celebration would have been unacceptable. That was, not, uh, that was not something that you would expect to see at this wedding. And the fact that Jesus transformed water into fancy wine, not just 
Walmart box wine. The point of that is not, uh, Jesus' intention here is not to provide something that is going to ruin the celebration and get everyone drunk and act like fools. Obviously, that's not the point. It does demonstrate, though, the generous grace and kindness of Jesus. Not only does Jesus save this family from shame, and they don't even know what's happening, he made them look like the most incredible hosts ever. Verse 11. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus performed this miracle on a molecular level when he transformed water into wine, and, and that's an incredible miracle. But I want you to notice how John describes the event. He describes the event as a miraculous sign. He'll do this uh, throughout the gospel. You'll see this over and over again where it's not just a miracle. He describes it as a sign. A sign is more than just a demonstration of his divine power. A sign has a deeper meaning to it. That's why John's describing it this way. There's a deeper meaning here going on. Yes, Jesus reveals his glory in demonstrating his divine power, but the way that he performed the miracle paints a picture of his mission. His mission is to become the miraculous spiritual purification that we all need. And the disciples are beginning to see it. Notice the results of the miracle. The disciples, it says, put their faith in Jesus, the miracle worker, the Messiah, the one who will cleanse us from sin. I asked you earlier, if you ever prayed for, if you ever asked God for a miracle, and I think most of us, if not all of us, raised our hands. There are times in our lives when, when we face problems, when we face challenges that are bigger than we are. We can't solve them on our own. It's outside of our control. Maybe that problem, that challenge, is something that we caused, like the head waiter. It's kind of his fault. Maybe it's not your fault. Maybe it's like the bride and groom. They don't even know this is going on. There's a problem coming. There's a potential crisis that's going to not just ruin their day, but could ruin them in a lot of ways. And they don't even know it's happening. It wasn't their fault. Whether it's our fault or not, there are times in life where we find ourselves standing in front of this 10-foot giant of a problem. Surrounding us like a dark cloud. And in those moments in life, we recognize our desperate need for divine help. This first miracle of Jesus, I think, should give us incredible confidence to bring our needs to Jesus. Because Jesus is the miracle-working God. We are asking this question week after week as we study through the book of John. Who is Jesus? Well, here we see Jesus is the miracle-working God. That's who he is. And he cares about the challenges that we face 
including the embarrassments of our own shortcomings. Jesus not only has the power to help, Jesus has the compassionate desire to help. And I love that about him. I love that this bride and groom never even knew this miracle happened. Jesus saved them from lifelong shame. They didn't even know what Jesus did for them. And why did it happen? Don't miss this. It happened because someone asked for a miracle on their behalf. And I want you to remember that the next time you pray for someone who needs a miracle, I want you to remember this story the next time you get on your knees and you beg God to do something miraculous in the life of someone else. They might not even know that you're praying for them. It doesn't matter. Jesus hears that prayer and he cares. And he very well may intervene into that situation on their behalf because you prayed. This miracle at a wedding in Cana was more than just Jesus revealing that he is the miracle-working God. This, as we said, is a sign of a deeper, greater miracle yet to come. What Jesus did with those stone water jars pointed forward to another tub of water. You might recognize it. That would not be used. This tub is not used to purify people from sin. This tub of water is used as a public picture of the miraculous purification that Jesus has already done for the soul of the one getting baptized. The mikvah of the past was used for spiritual cleansing, but now Jesus, through the power of his death and resurrection, is what cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The new mikvah, the baptism tub, is a picture of that spiritual miracle When Jesus takes our spiritually dead soul and breathes his eternal life into us, making us alive. Turning water into wine, yes, an incredible miracle, but transforming a dead soul into one that is spiritually alive and has the assurance of eternal life, a transformed heart, I would argue that's an even greater miracle. That's a miracle that we need even more, you ready? Even more than relief from our problems. Let me say that again. That is a miracle. That transformation of our hearts is a miracle we need even more than relief from our problems. I want to challenge you before we go today with a deep thought question. Is the miracle we ask for the miracle we need? Is the miracle we ask for the miracle we need? Let me give you an example. Let's imagine together that you or someone that you love is experiencing a major health problem. It's a big deal. And in those moments, I'm sure we have all experienced it at some point in our lives. If you live long enough, you've been in these moments 
we ask God, we pray for a miracle of healing. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should ask for a miracle of healing if that would be God's will. Totally appropriate. It's biblical. But it's also possible that the miracle you ask for may not be the miracle that you need. Maybe what you need is what this baptism tub represents. Maybe what you need is salvation from sin, salvation from eternal death. Maybe that's the miracle that you need more than physical healing. Here's what I mean. Even if Jesus, the miracle-working God, provides the physical healing that you ask for today, death will come another day. Do you understand? Death will come another day. And when it comes, if our hearts are not right with God, that miracle healing here won't matter in eternity. And if you feel that conviction in your heart, if you know in your soul that you need to admit, I need this spiritual miracle that was represented in baptism today. I need that myself. Then today's the day. Today's the day you step forward in faith and you trust Jesus Christ as your forgiver of sin, your savior from hell, and today's the day you begin following Jesus. We'd love to help you. We've got all of our pastors here uh, today. You can come talk to us. There's a button right on the front page, gracefellowship.online, front page of that website that says, I'm ready. You scroll through that. explains the gospel. Let us know if we can be of any help. Maybe the miracle we ask for is not the miracle that we need. Let me give you one more example Let's imagine, and I know this is not a stretch for a lot of us. This is not a stretch. In fact, you might be in it right now today. Dealing with a terrible, stressful, soul-crushing situation, and it could be because of a bad relationship. It could be because your finances are underwater. Maybe you're overwhelmed with your workload. You're walking through an embarrassing mistake. You have these thoughts of loneliness you have these thoughts of inadequacy that you cannot seem to quiet. And you pray, and you ask God for a miracle to change your situation. And yes, we absolutely should step towards God in faith and ask for his help. But it may be that we need a different miracle than just relief from our problem. It may be that Jesus, the miracle-working God, wants to intervene in our hearts and make us more like him through our situation because of what we're going through. And if I could just be honest with you, I think that's the miracle that I need every day. I think that is the miracle of a transformation of my heart to make me more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. I think that's the miracle that I need every day and that we should be praying for. 
every day. I'm not saying we don't pray for these important big miracles, absolutely. But those crises, most of us don't, don't live every day at a 10 level crisis, thankfully. I think most days what we just need is to pray, God, do a miracle in my heart today. Make me more like Jesus. I desperately need you to do that for me. I think that's a, a miracle we can pray for every day.